So question as we start this morning. How many of you, you would say, I don't really like thinking or talking about death? I don't really like thinking or talking about death. How much do you like thinking or talking about your own death? Okay, just like not a lot of fun. I've often repeated that I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And most of you, it's like you don't like to think or talk much about death, especially your own. And growing up for the first years of our experience as far as life on this earth, most of us, uh, all the people that we know, all the beasts that we know and love, they're just part of our life. They're just here. In fact, we can't even comprehend or we don't even try to consider a world without them. But eventually, we all have an encounter with death that uh, we experience, and when we experience it, something inside of us change, something shifts, and it raises questions in us, and this external event causes an internal shift in our life. It's like maybe you remember that moment for you. For me, it was the death of my great-grandfather. It was a man that I idolized. When he died, I was only nine years old, and I remember going to his funeral and looking at his body in the casket, and it was the first time that I'd seen a dead body that I remembered, and especially of someone that I loved, and for me, it was a surreal experience. In fact, I remember staring and just staring at his chest, waiting for it to just kind of move up and expand as he finally took a breath, or I remember staring at his closed eyes and thought, if I just watch hard and long enough, eventually this man that I love, like, he's going to blink, because I was having a very difficult time wrapping my mind around the fact that I could see his body, and yet at the same time, this man that I loved and admired and cherished, who was just always a part of my life, he, he just wasn't there. And I remember thinking intuitively as, as in my nine-year-old brain that what made him him, it, it couldn't just evaporate. I mean, right? I mean, it had to go somewhere. I mean, where was he? And I just struggled to process the fact that all that was here was this, this shell, and I suspect most of us, when we have seen a dead body, especially for the, for, the, for the first time, that we've all felt something similar, and we begin to wonder what happens after we die. What happens after we die? And obviously, this question isn't just limited to funerals. I mean, there's a lot of things that can get us thinking about this. Uh, many of us, we've experienced near-death experiences. It's no shock. I have experienced several. Uh, in America, 81% of Americans, 81% of Americans believe in an afterlife of some sort. In fact, in fact, 8 out of 10 Americans would say they agree with this statement. Every person has a soul that will live forever, either in God's presence or absence. Yet, though most Americans believe in life after death uh, and the existence of the soul, one out of four adults admit that they have no idea what will happen after they die. And so we want to help with that. And the awesome thing is that Jesus and his closest followers, they offer some important thoughts. And in fact, we'll come to see that Jesus said the whole reason that he came, the whole reason he came is because there's more to this life than this life. And if that's true, then it's imperative that we take the time to talk about it. And the reason why this is so important is because what you believe about eternity determines how you live today. If you believe you're an accident, that there's no God, that there's no eternity, then you're going to define good and bad the way you want to define good and bad. And you're going to live life pretty much focused on you, on maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain and discomfort. Because why not? It's like we live and then tomorrow we die, the end. On the other hand, if you believe that you were created by a God and that what makes you, you, 
is your soul will live awake and live aware somewhere forever, eternally. What you believe about that will impact how you live now. That belief will shape the way you live. Now, nearly every week in our community here at New Life, we focus most often on one, maybe two texts at the most, two scriptures with one big idea that if you apply it will make your life better and make you better at life. But today and over the next few weeks, because of the breadth of this topic, we're actually going to look at multiple texts with one big idea, that ultimately how you choose, uh, how you choose to live now impacts your eternity. Uh, but y'all are super smart, so I know that you'll be able to keep up. And my hope is that it will inspire you, that it will inspire you to begin reading your New Testament more, to understand the implications of how to live now and how it impacts not just our life on this earth, but how it impacts our eternity. Because if you don't really understand it, you may never really change. In fact, for some of you, you might say, if I'm being brutally honest, I keep God at an arm's distance. You might say that you value spirituality and you value spiritual things, and there's a version of a God that you've adopted that this God just loves you no matter what. And that's true. It's just not the whole truth. And for some of you, I just, I love you enough to say that if the extent of your spiritual life is just coming to church or logging on to church most weeks, and uh, maybe you tell people you'll pray for them the time to time, and you actually do do that, and sometimes, you know, maybe you give a little money, uh, but, you know, that's about it. As we're going to see, that's not enough. What you believe about eternity will determine how you live today. So today, we're starting this new message series, One Minute After You Die. And to give credit where credit's due, the, the structure of this original series comes from an amazing team of one of our, from one of our sister churches. And part of what we're going to do today is clarify the fact that you don't really die. We're, we're going to look at some of what Jesus and his closest followers said about death and what happens after. And for those of you that are skeptical, I just want you to know I, I totally get it. You just need to know that the reason that we take Jesus seriously is because Jesus was someone who predicted and pulled off his own death and resurrection, and hundreds and hundreds of witnesses confirmed this and documented it and documented so much of what he did and taught. So we take Jesus seriously. And Jesus could not have been any clearer. You will live forever somewhere. At some point, your physical body will cease to exist and your soul will continue to live. So we're going today, going to focus and learn about the eternal aspect of our soul. And then next week, we're going to talk about the very uncomfortable subject of hell. Is it a real place? Why did God create it? Could a good God actually create something like that? And what happens in hell? And who's, who's going there? And is there really suffering in hell eternally? And, and then week three, we're going to talk about heaven. And we're actually going to have some baptisms that weekend. It's going to be a great weekend. But heaven, who goes there? What do you do there? Is it just nothing more than just a really long, boring worship service for thousands of years? I mean, do I have a new body? I kind of hope so. Uh, do you recognize people? We're going to talk about those things, but today I just want to lay the foundation for where we're headed, and then please listen to this part very closely. Over the next three weeks, we're going to look at words and verses and imagery and metaphor and simile uh, that almost sounds fairy tale-ish, okay? And for some, 
there's many that are tempted to discard it as kind of once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away in a magical land because when you read some of the imagery, especially in the book of Revelation, it can sound more like a weird fantasy movie. But here's what you need to keep in mind. Whether it's Jesus trying to paint a picture of God or eternity or heaven or hell or John trying to describe everything that he saw in a vision that was given to him towards the end of his life, that all of these individuals are limited and constrained to the language and the physical world of their day. So here's what I mean. Imagine for a moment that you were able to travel back in time and you found yourself in colonial Massachusetts in 1692. And you found a group of settlers that were willing to take you in, and you began to try and describe the architecture and the industry and the medicine and the technology of 2021. And you were trying to, you tried to describe skyscrapers that were hundreds of stories tall, made of steel and concrete. What's concrete? With electricity. What's electricity? And, and, And there are these giant metal tubes that are tubes that are made of metal and fiberglass and plastic. What's fiberglass and plastic? And you can fly hundreds of miles per hour for thousands of miles while you sit in a chair. And then you tried to describe something like this. A smartphone and how you can talk and send words uh, 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 through the air and that you can access anyone or access any information almost anywhere in the world. But to describe all of this, you're limited and constrained to the physical and mental world and language of the 17th century. Okay, imagine how insane you would sound. How fantastical you would sound, impossible it would sound to the 17th century. And let's be honest, before you even got the smartphones, they would be hauling you off to the gallows to burn your body as a witch, okay? So if you're someone that gets hung up on the imagery and the metaphor and the, and the language, you need to realize that's being intellectually dishonest. One of the fundamental rules of understanding any literature is to consider and read it within the historical and cultural context. And the text of Scripture is not written in a historical and cultural vacuum. So it's not exempt from this fundamental rule that's just summarized as this. Context is king. So as you personally read through the New Testament in your life, as we dig in over the next few weeks, just remember, all of this is written within a first century Mideastern context with the authors and even Jesus being limited and constrained to the language and the physical imagery of the world of that day. So don't end up missing the very, very important punchlines of what's trying to be communicated. Now, to Everyone listening to my voice, this will hopefully not be news to you, but 100% of you are going to die, okay? Day is coming, your heart will beat one last time, and that's it. The only real question is how. So years ago, I was surfing in Southern California, and I was paddling out. I got out pretty good ways along the pier, and suddenly I saw a black shadow about the size of a minivan kind of coast under me. That was that. Paddled my happy butt back to the shore, spent the day on the beach because of all the ways that I could die. Being eaten by an ocean dweller is not top of my list. Uh, For those of you that have a beach trip, hopefully in the future, just to encourage you, I looked it up. The odds of you you dying, say, by shark attack is like 1 in 3,748,000, which means statistically you are more likely to be killed by being hit by a champagne cork 
or falling off a ladder or uh, a sand hole collapse. So as long as you're not standing on a ladder in the sand during a major celebration with champagne, you're okay. But the scripture teaches that you and I, we come from dust, we're going back to dust. The author of the New Testament document that we call Hebrews says, people are destined to die once and after that, face judgment. We're going to come back to that thought. But his point is that our physical bodies will die. And when that happens, our souls separate from our physical bodies. Our physical bodies stay behind. Some of us will be very glad to leave those behind. But our soul continues to live. And according to the author of Hebrews, what will follow is something he refers to as judgment. We're going to talk about that, which connects to what Jesus said to his listeners when he said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Sounds a little terrifying. Don't miss miss next week. The basic point is that your body ceases to exist, your soul continues to live, which means after your funeral and they or after the memorial and everybody's gathered and then they leave to go to their potluck dinner, you will never be more alive than you are in that moment. What happens one minute after we die? Well, your body separates, your soul separates from your body and it continues to live. Then at some point, we will all face judgment. Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, he wrote it this way. He said, remember, the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time as foreigners in the land. So Peter reminds us of something of utmost importance that we have to always keep in mind, something we're going to drill on through this series, that this world is not your home. This world is not my home. We are just passing through. This is just a short period in time in, 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 in the, the eternal scheme of things. And at the end of your life, we will be judged or we will be rewarded. Now, the 76% of Americans who believe in heaven Guess what percentage believe they're going there? Almost all of them, almost the majority. They, they believe they're going to go to heaven when they die. And for, for most, the reason they think they're going to go to heaven when they die is because they think of themselves as basically a good person. And so here's what is really interesting about that, because let's be honest, none of us like the idea of judgment or being judged. And we just, just, just like, no, I don't like that. But what they're saying without meaning to say it is they're saying, I believe there's a judge, I believe there's a judgment, and I believe admittance into heaven is connected to me being judged as good enough. And I think when I look around, I'm, I'm good enough. So at a basic level, the majority embrace the idea of judgment, even though we would all say we don't really like that idea. That doesn't seem very nice. In fact, in the New Testament, we're actually presented with two different judgments. You may not have known that. The first is referred to as the great white throne judgment. And this is found in the book of Revelation. It's just, again, a first century document written by one of Jesus' inner circle followers, John. He was actually the youngest of the 12. He spent three years by Jesus' side. So then years after spending time with a resurrected Jesus, he's exiled to the island of Patmos. And by this time, he's an old man. All of his closest friends are dead. And while on the island, God gives him a vision of heaven and a vision of things to come. And I've always thought how maddening it must have been for John to try and articulate and paint a picture of these things, again, limited to the language and the imagery of his day. 
But he says in his vision, I saw a great white throne and the one enthroned and the one enthroned. Nothing could stand before or against the presence, nothing in heaven, nothing on earth. And then I saw all the dead, great and small, standing there before the throne. Most scholars think that the great white throne judgment is exclusively for non-believers. I would align with that. And, and books, the books were, books were open. Then another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, by the way they had lived. The sea released the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each man and woman was judged by the way he or she had lived. Then death and Hades were hurled into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone whose name was not written, not found written in the book of life was also hurled into the lake of fire. Now what is all that? What is, what is death and what is Hades and the lake of fire? Come back next week. John describes a great white throne judgment. And in this vision, he describes seeing uh, books open. And based on this and other passages within the New Testament, we, it recorded in these books is every person's thought, every word, every deed. And each person is judged by what's recorded about them. And, and again, we have to keep in mind that John is trying to describe heavenly things while being limited to earthly imagery. But at the core, his message is that somehow, and this is a little bit unsettling, but somehow our day-to-day, minute-by-minute lives, all the things that we say, all the things that we think, all the things we do, that it's somehow recorded. Now, Here's something really interesting. Like when John wrote this, like this sounded like a totally spiritual thing and like who, who could even do such a thing? But the amazing thing and unsettling thing is that we are one of the first generations to realize this is not such a far-fetched idea, idea. that this isn't just some spiritual idea. I mean, think of it. On earth in 2021, on this physical earth, all of your digital activity with your smart TVs, with your cable, with your phones, with your smartphones, everything online, Siri and Alexis, they're always listening, okay? All of this is recorded and stored ultimately to make money, right? We have that capability. It happens today, every day. I I hope you know that. So like Siri and Alexa, they're always listening. So every search, every click, every tap, all of that is recorded. And with the advent of social media, you know, there was all this controversy years ago about privacy and people knowing they think. We just freely give them all the information, right? Like what our likes are, what we're happy about, what we don't like, what our political positions are. We just, all of our thoughts and preferences and opinions, we just give it voluntarily. I mean, if you Google search today how to get rid of bed bugs, the next time you open up any social media app, you're going to be inundated with ads on how to get rid of bed bugs, okay? So, and there's security cameras all around, and trust me, I am not a conspiracy theorist, and I'm not scared of any of this. That's not the point. My point is that we are one of the first generations to understand how all of our activity and our personal lives and all that we do and say, every indication of what we're thinking based on what we like and don't like and post and click and search, it's all filed away and stored in a magical place called the cloud. According to Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, every detail of our lives is somehow recorded in heaven. And in this white throne judgment, the people whose names are not written in what John refers to as the book of life, they're judged accordingly and then cast into what he refers to as the lake of fire. Again, could a good God possibly 
ever do such a thing? Next week, we find out. And there's something sobering that I need to point out about this judgment. In Matthew 7, we're told something that Jesus said that is very unsettling. Jesus said, not everyone, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we we prophesied in your name and we cast out demons and in your name we performed many miracles in your name. Lord, Lord, I I showed up to church most weekends and I gave money sometimes and I made sure to post pictures of my Bible next to my very artistic coffee drink on Instagram and hashtag coffee with Jesus and I tried really hard to do good works, but Jesus will reply, "I, I don't know you. I never knew you. Away from me, you, you evildoers. In other words, we, we weren't in relationship. In other words, you weren't relying on Jesus. You were relying on you. So there's the first judgment. Is your name written in the book, the Lamb's Book of Life? And if it is, then we're told about a second judgment. The judgment seat of Christ is what it's referred to as. In, in a letter to the church in Corinth, Paul writes to these Corinthian believers, we must all We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So what's the the judgment seat of Christ? Well, the Greek term that is used, bema, is actually from the Greek Olympics. And it's taken from the the Olympics. It's an elevated place or it's an elevated platform where the, the judge sits. And it's where those that have finished the race would ultimately, or finish whatever competition it was, would then go to receive judgment. So judgment for first place and second place and third place and so on. And the judge would give out rewards and prizes to those uh, to say, here's the crown, here's the wreath for first or second or third place and on down the line. So the Bema seat wasn't to judge, did you qualify? The Bema seat was to say, hey, you finished, you completed the task, you, you, you crossed the line, you, you crossed the finish line. So here's your reward for how you placed And according to Jesus and the New Testament authors, the the judgment seat of Christ isn't a judgment for being accepted into heaven. This is where what you did on earth gets rewarded in heaven. So we are saved by grace, but we are rewarded for works. That's what we learn. We can't be saved by works. You can't be religious enough. You you can't try hard enough. You can't be good enough. You can't rid yourself of, of enough past junk in your life to be right with God. It's by nature we're broken. By nature we're what Scripture calls sinners, that we've missed the mark and we've been separated because of that from God. And so we're saved by one thing and one thing alone, the grace offered through Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, who went from Christian killer to Jesus follower, he wrote in his letter to the church in Rome, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, And believe in your heart, and not just believe in your head, believe in your heart, meaning I'm staking my life on it, that this belief is going to alter and change the direction of my life, that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And the beauty of this is the incredible freedom that it gives us. What this means is that that I've been saved by the love of Jesus. 
I've been saved and changed by the love of Jesus, which means that you don't have to work for the love and the salvation that God offers. You don't have to try and be good enough. You don't have to try and earn it or win it. You've got it. It's just offered to you. This immeasurable gift given out of the purest of love. And what do you do when somebody gives you an incredible gift out of the purest of love? You want to love them back. You can't wait for an opportunity to return this kind of love, not out of a sense of debt, but out of a sense of gratitude, deep gratitude, which means if you truly believe and understand the magnitude of the sacrificial love shown to you through Jesus, then you're naturally going to want to live for the fame of Jesus. You're saved by grace, but you're rewarded in heaven for how you live, for your works. What you do now matters eternally. So it raises the question, well, then, okay, what are, we, what are we rewarded for? What will we be judged by? Well, here's just a few things that we learn from Jesus. You'll be judged and rewarded for how you treat people, including people that you consider very different from you, including people that you actually consider your adversary. You'll be judged and rewarded by how you treated and cared for the outcast or the poor or the broken, the marginalized and the hurting. You'll be judged by your motives, by the words you speak, You'll be judged by how you endure suffering and rewarded if you endure suffering well. You'll be rewarded or judged by what you do with what you have. Did you use your resources to be a blessing or did you just pretty much hoard it all for yourself? You'll be rewarded when you help lead people to Christ. I I mean, imagine at some date in the future, boom, your physical body just ceases to exist. Game over. All the stuff that you have is just left behind and distributed, and, and you stand or more, more, more likely fall before your knees, on your knees before Jesus, and he says, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. When you served adults, when you served kids, when you served them in ministry, in new life, all those weeks, and you, you made an internal difference in their life. You didn't even realize it at the time that that's what you were doing, but so many of them are here today, and because of them, so many others are here today because of you and what you did, or you prayed, and you prayed, and you were persistent, or you were the brightest light in your school or in your workplace, and when everybody either ignored you or wrote you off or even laughed at you, you were faithful. You could have done what was easy, but instead you chose to do what was right, and many times no one even noticed or saw, but you need to know I noticed. I saw. Well done. You didn't have much, but you always gave. I mean, you enjoyed what you had, but you didn't, you also used what you had to build up others, to build up my local church. You were generous with your time and resources and the lives of other people to help meet their needs, people who had nothing to offer you in return. I noticed. Well done. Jesus will say to some of you, you visited me when I was in prison. You visited me when I was sick. you gave me food when I was hungry. You gave me water when I was thirsty and and will be disoriented. Jesus, when did I do any of that? And Jesus will look at you and say, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. You shared your faith. You worked up the courage and pushed all those selfish, irrational fears down because you knew there's more to this life than this life. So you served and you loved, but you also used your words to tell people about me that I had come, that I lived, that I died, and that I rose again because they wouldn't have figured it out on their own if you hadn't told them. What we believe about eternity impacts how we live today. Now for a moment, just a moment, I just 
would like to be as brutal, brutally honest with you as I can. As I prepared for today, and as I look in the mirror over the last year, when it comes to living for eternity, honestly, I don't think I was doing a very great job. Uh, for those that know me, you might see me as a, a friend, a church planting pastor, and that I do my job the best that I can, and that's all true. I, I, I am and I do. And some of you may think that somehow some of that makes me special, but it doesn't. Not at all. There's a life that I live outside of my work, outside of my job, and, and the truth is the longer that I've walked with Christ, and it's been a long time now, and the longer that I'm in ministry, over 25 years now, you think it would be easier to be more eternally minded. But the truth is, the longer that I live on this earth, the more I find myself caring way too much about the things of this world. And I hate it. My entire work is all about people and transformation. But the problem is, is y'all are so stubborn when it comes to change, but not as stubborn and resistant as the man that I see in the mirror. I fight the same battles. I fight the same doubts, the same fears, the same temptations. I still battle what people think of me versus being obsessed with what God thinks. And there are times that I get discouraged with ministry and about the only place that I get to interact really with people that aren't Christians is the why. But the problem is when I go to the gym, especially except for racquetball, I kind of want people to leave me alone. And if I'm playing them, I want to beat them because that's the fun, right? Uh, you know, but when it comes to working out, like I want to get in, I want to get a full one-hour workout, and I want to get out uninterrupted, and I'm kind of ashamed about that. The older I get, the more I crave comfort. And the more I crave comfort, the more tempted I am to live less for the things that matter most. And embarrassingly, that's just kind of where I've been as I look back over the last year. So with everything in me, like all of you, I am fighting against the gravitational pull toward the things of this world, to fight against the world that just tries to put up blinders to where that's all we see is what's in front of us and around us and the things that worry us, and we can't see past and see the bigger picture. We can't see beyond here and now. I get moving towards the things that matter most, and then I get distracted, and then I get distracted again, and the things that I get distracted by are never as important is the things that I'm getting distracted from. So I have to force myself into being consistent and blocking uninterrupted time in prayer and in Scripture, more time for the Holy Spirit to recenter me. I have to go toe-to-toe -to -toe in that thing with, with that thing in me that tells me that I don't have the time or I don't have the emotional energy to engage those around me, especially those that don't know Jesus or who are far from God, to not only stay consistent in my giving generously to this community, to our church, but to also look for and act on opportunities all around me to be generous, to win my own personal battle against greed. I have to pray longer than feels normal because like many of you, my mind races to my two-page, single-spaced work list and all the tasks and all the people that need my attention or should get my attention, and I have to force myself into extended prayer that recenters me and reminds me there is more to this life than this life. And if God doesn't build the house, if God doesn't 
build what I'm trying to accomplish, that I am relying on me, and that's never a good idea. The pull of this world is so strong, but especially as we're going to see in a couple weeks, so temporary. And one day, sooner than you think, your heart will beat for its last time. And there are no do-overs. That's why for those of you that follow Jesus, we have to fight to keep God and the eternal goal front and center. And the eternal goal is to live and love in obedience and submission to Christ so that one day we can stand before God and hear Him say, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Something that's often in my prayers is, God, I, I don't want just heaven when I die. That alone is, is amazing enough. Don't miss week three. I don't want just heaven when I die. What I want to do is to be able to live each day that if you were to judge me on just this one day alone, that you could look at me and go, well done, my good and faithful servant. And when you find yourself more concerned with this world, whatever it is, sports, what you wear, your body, the degree, the new house, popularity, the car, the next car, the vacation, the bank account, the investment account, the next thousand dollars, the next ten thousand dollars, whatever it is, there's nothing wrong with those things, but we can't have our roots in those things. That can't be the thing that drives our perspective. Cut the roots off the things of this world for the things that don't matter or last for eternity. And as we move into the next two weeks, my prayer is that God would recalculate us and recenter us on, with an eternal mindset, an eternal mindset. And for some of us, it'll be for the first time to recognize the power and the reality that what we believe about eternity absolutely impacts how we live today. That we wouldn't just be hearers of God's word, but that we would be doers. I'd like the band to come up, and I'm going to pray. God, I pray that you would shake us, that you would disrupt us, that you would recalibrate us, that you would take us to or back to the truth of your word. God, I pray for those of us that recognize that we've drifted maybe a long way from center. God, reorient us, change us, redirect us, refocus us, and center us around your truth. God, don't make slight adjustments, but overhaul us spiritually. Cause us to put you first in all that we do. God, every day help us to center on your word, focus on your truth, and may our goal every single day be not about this world, but about impacting what matters most. Those around us and towards you eternally. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. Um, before we jump into the song and before you leave today, for those of you here, join us online. If you've been around me, you hopefully already know this, but I, I rarely, if ever, try to use fear as a motivator. When it comes to God and his sacrificial deep love for us, that's what I focus on. Because as one of the New Testament writers puts it, it's the love of God. It's the love of God that spurs us towards a change in our life, towards repentance, to be devoted to Him. But it would be incomplete for me to, to share with you anything less than the totality of God's Word. 
Because as we said, Jesus said something very unsettling, and it should cause us to pause, that there will be a time that for some of us, maybe some of you, that will stand before him, and he's going to say, I didn't know you. And you might say, but I went to church, I watched online, I listened to podcasts, and I, I tried to do good things. But again, Jesus, Jesus will say, I, I, I didn't know you. So I have a responsibility to do everything I can to help you know him and have an eternal mindset. And next week, we're going to talk about hell and specifically what we learn from Jesus and the New Testament writers about hell and who it's for and what it is and the horrors of hell. But the other thing that I want to emphasize every week is that we are never made right with God through our religious works or our efforts by what we do or don't do because the good news is so good because Jesus did for us what we could never ever do for ourselves. In God's love for us, he became one of us. And then the person of his son, Jesus, who was without sin, which is what qualified him then to die for us that did have sin. As an eternal sacrifice for our forgiveness, he shed his innocent blood on the cross and he died in our place and he rose from the dead. Why? So that anyone, and this includes you, who calls out on his name will be saved, forgiven, transformed. It doesn't matter how dark your life is or how much you've done wrong in the past. When you call on the name of Jesus, you make peace with God. But next week, invite a friend to come sit with you. Don't miss next week.